Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us. Those of you that are joining us live online or are watching this uh, on one of our streaming platforms uh, tonight, on Wednesday night, or sometime uh, later during the week, we're glad that you've joined us. And for those that are in the room, uh, certainly grateful that you are here uh, today and good to have some of our teenagers with us um, since we had to postpone our student ministry activities uh, for the night uh, due to some COVID exposure. I just wanted to say, because it wasn't super clear in the email that went out to parents. And so if you're a parent in here, or maybe you're watching at home because you just weren't sure. None of our teenagers were exposed to the coronavirus. All right, this happened uh, Sunday night and it was a, just a handful of our youth workers that were, that were together. And so there wasn't an, a direct exposure to any of our teenagers. None of it was on Sunday morning. So um, we're, um, we're, everybody's good in case somebody was uh, curious about that with, with our students. Um, we're going to pick up where we were, uh, where we left off last week in our biblical worldview. Uh, but before I get to that and, and introduce, introducing this session for tonight, I want to, uh, I want to pray for us, always open in prayer. But I think today would be a, a good day for us to specifically pray uh, for our leaders as we're commanded to do in scripture as uh, we now have a new president and a new vice president. And so I would like for us just congregationally uh, to pray for um, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris and, um, and be grateful to the Lord for, um, for peaceful transition of power in, in our own culture and society before we get started. So let's pray together. Father, we uh, are grateful to you that you are the king of the universe, that you uh, are in control, that you are sovereign over all things. Uh, and that you appoint the boundaries of nations and you put rulers in charge and you remove their power from them. And so, Father, we confess that to be true from Scripture and, and recognize, God, that because that is true, um, you, you have seen in your sovereign will in this time to give us the leaders that we have. Uh, we are grateful, God, for a peaceful transition of power that took place today in Washington, D.C., uh, and God, we do pray first for President Joe Biden. We thank you, God, um, uh, for his willingness to uh, serve our country for uh, so many years. We pray, Father, for him specifically that you would give him wisdom, uh, that you would um, ca cause his heart to desire to defend um, biblical principles such as uh, life and marriage, God, that maybe even uh, all these years later in his, uh, in his time as a politician, that, that he would change his mind on some things. God, show us where we can lovingly support him. Let us not uh, offer opposition just because we would um, oppose in certain areas, but where we do oppose, God, we pray that you would change his heart, particularly on matters uh, like life. Uh, Father, we also pray for Vice President Kamala Harris. We, we, we thank you, God, for um, the testimony that this shows um, to uh, ethnic minorities in our culture and to uh, young women and girls in our culture that says you can rise to a position like this. And so, Father, we do celebrate that today, um, that, uh, that no longer is uh, the vice presidency uh, just a boys club. Uh, we also pray the same for her, Father, that you would give her wisdom in making choices, uh, that she would be a gracious leader. Uh, and Father, in places where her desires differ from your truth, we pray, God, that you would change her mind uh, and let us also lovingly support her in the ways that we can, but also speak uh, truth uh, in, in, those, uh, in those areas in which we would disagree. I pray for our nation, and we ask, God, that you would continue to heal our nation, which is so uh, divided now. Would you, would you help your church lead in that? Let us not sit on the sideline. Let us not um, just be the cheerleaders of one team, but let us, Father, go forward with the gospel, recognizing that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that truly brings people together in you. Uh, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic status, all of these things that we have allowed to divide us, God, the gospel breaks every one of those barriers. So would your church, we pray, uh, be a witness for that barrier-breaking gospel uh, in our culture over these next, over these coming weeks and months and years ahead. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you again that you are our king 
and that you are a sovereign God that rules over the nations. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So for those that have not been with us, whether in person or online, and particularly for some of our students that gathered with us, uh, on Wednesday nights this semester, I have been talking about developing a biblical worldview. And because we've got new people and particularly teenagers, when Michael and I were talking last night and we determined that we were not going to be able to have student ministry uh, with what was going on, I actually said this would be a great time for our teenagers to, to sit in with me. A lot of these lessons, a lot of these sessions that I'm teaching on Wednesday nights would, would be really good. But I really think today is, is specifically going to be helpful. In the providence of God, in his sovereignty, I think uh, you guys are, are sitting in here with me. But I do want to be able to catch you up before getting to this um, before getting to this uh, session today. So uh, we need to ask the question, what is a biblical or what is a worldview? And that's really where we started two weeks ago. This is our third session. Uh, talking about a worldview is how we see and interact with what is happening around us. So we imagine it, we imagine it as if it is a series of lenses that have been placed in front of our eyes uh, through which we envision the world and then through which we react to what is happening in the world. I have compared it in the previous two weeks. Uh, if you've ever been to an eye test to the, to the big black thing, they pull down in front of your eyes um, and, and switch all the lenses over and see which one is better. And it's got all of these options in there. And that's kind of what a worldview is. It's a crude example of what a, a worldview is. And that there's numerous things that have contributed to your worldview, to your way of thinking. Uh, for our teenagers in the room, the way that your mom and dad have raised you, the things that they've talked about, the things that they've taught you to value, the things that you've just overheard them saying, you would have no idea how much of your worldview is shaped sitting in the back of the car listening to your parents talk. Um, you'll realize it one day because you'll start saying things that you didn't know that you were, you'll say things that they said and you didn't even know that you were going to do it, right? Um, and so all of these, uh, where you were raised, the kind of home you were raised in, if you were raised in church or not, uh, all of these things contribute. These are all varying lenses um, it, that, that are in front. We would also put uh, things like um, our ethnicity, things like how much money we have. All of these contribute then to how we see the world um, and how we interact with the world. Then last week we talked to, we tried to specifically define a biblical worldview and this we want to be not to replace the lenses that we have, but to challenge them, to, to make sure that they are an, giving us an accurate picture as God would see it. And so we looked at some of the, what are known as the meta-narratives of the Bible, these big picture ideas in the Bible that should always determine how we see the world. For instance, we should always see the world as a creation by God that is fully owned and held together by God because the Bible tells us uh, in no uncertain terms in multiple places that that is absolute truth. Uh, we, we, should view the, we should view people in the world as loving creations of God, the crowning work of God's creation, uh, all loved by God, but also all fallen and affected by sin, and therefore, every one of us capable of doing great evil. We should see the gospel of Jesus, that he died in our place sacrificially so that we might have life uh, as uh, one of these meta-narratives, really the culmination of the redemptive story of God redeeming people, a people for his glory, and, and recognizing that, that it is through the gospel that we should answer questions uh, as it relates to not only salvation, but as it relates to our relationship with others. And so we talked about some others, but, that, but when we take the Bible as a whole and, and we, we pull it in front of these other lenses, it starts to peel off some of these other ones, just like that eye doctor will do when he realizes that one of those little circles in front of your eyes is not the right one, he'll switch it to a, to a new one. Well, that's, that's kind of what the Bible does for us is, the Bible starts showing us that um, I may have been raised to be selfish, or I may have been raised not to think about others, or I may have been raised to be um, prejudiced. I, I may have been raised to think badly about certain kinds
names of people or people that live a certain way or people that live in a certain place. I, 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 may, I may have those lenses in front of me that when I look at through the scriptures, I then see, wait, I've got to remove that and replace it with a biblical one. So the goal again is not, I used this term last week, the goal is not brainwashing. Brainwashing is when we take all of those lenses away and we replace it with something else. The goal of Christian life is not brainwashing. You are going to see the world as as you see it. I'm going to see the world as I see it. And we probably see the world similarly because we very likely have similar backgrounds. But um, the further away from your own location you go and the further uh, amongst different people you get and you go to the other side of the world, people are definitely going to see the world somewhat differently than you. And that's okay. There's... there's, um, diversity is, is actually a good thing. It's, it's not a bad thing. And so diversity of view is always going to be something that we have within the church, but each individual group down to each individual person is going to be required to evaluate these lenses that we've allowed to develop in our lives over a period of time and replace them with, with a biblical one. We also talked about the predominant worldviews that when, when all of these things kind of coalesce, not only within my own life, but within groups of people, we end up with, with what are known as dominant uh, worldviews that, that exist today in our world. And we talked about the postmodern worldview, which is going to come back up today. Uh, which, is, which is the worldview that says there is no truth because we're dealing with truth tonight. Um, there is um, um, therapeutic, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which is an embracing of God as someone who wants to help me when I need help, but leaves me alone when I don't, uh, right? And those are probably two dominant positions that people in our part and our neck of the woods, if you will, and in this part of the world, um, most likely subscribe to uh, is that you get to have your version of truth and I get to have my version of truth, but my version of truth has this, you know, God that everybody kind of gets along with and likes pretty good, except for the people that I don't like. He doesn't like them either, right? And that's, that's really what, how a lot of people just kind of in a big picture sense view the world. That's what their lenses and their education and their, their way of thinking has kind of led to. Which really leads us to tonight's question, and that is this. Does absolute truth exist? Well, you say yes, and I would hope you would say yes, right? In some ways, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, But I I, I do want to challenge us a little bit because we say, I would think most people in this room, and, and if you're new in here, I always teach Wednesday nights. I don't preach as if I'm preaching exclusively to Christians, but I teach Wednesday nights as if I'm teaching exclusively to Christians. I, I like to approach it in that manner. And so while we may say, well, yes, sure, absolute truth exists, we often operate as if it doesn't. We, we kind of become closet, um, you know, uh, uh, postmodernists. Um, and, and we allow some relativity to, to leak in. And I'm actually going to do an illustration here in a minute that's going to that's gonna show you that. But let me start with what, really what is how, how now today people in general are approaching the idea of truth, answering this question, does absolute truth exist? Because by the way, even if you go out into our pluralistic uh, postmodern society and you ask non-Christian people, non-church-going, non-Bible people, um, even up into academics, um, philosopher-type kind of folks, and you say, does absolute truth exist? They're probably also going to say yes. Now, you might say, wait, I thought postmodern meant absolute truth doesn't exist. That's, that's, it's, I used this example last week. It's a little bit like nailing jello to the wall, right? It is an oversimplification to say they would say that no absolute truth exists, but that a lot of truth is relative. And so what they've ended up doing, what our society's ended up doing, and this is, gonna, this is really going to make sense to you once I paint this picture for you, uh, because you see this every day. You just don't necessarily know that you see it. And we do it without even realizing that we do it, is that what our current society, our current way of thinking has done is we, we've built a two-story house of truth. All right, and and the, the house is distinctly two stories, 
And there's two different kinds of truth that reside within that house. The first story is rational, verifiable facts, right? This is things like what goes up must come down, right? This is one plus one equals two. Now, that's the building blocks of that first story, all right? Is, is rational, verifiable facts. These are, these are the laws of physics and biology that, that these things work because we have figured out exactly how they work. And we have, we have as a society, filled that first floor with these, these truths that are then binding on everyone, that we expect everyone to affirm that one plus one equals two. There's just this universal expectation that everyone recognize that this is true. We could call, also call this the, the secular story, okay? That this is the secular story of the house. This is something, these are things that at least on a base level, uh, a Christian could affirm, a Muslim could affirm, an atheist could, could affirm, a deist could affirm, like whoever you are, right, an agnostic. Everybody could kind of affirm, affirm the things on this level. Then you have what's known as the, what we would call the second story, right? This is, this is still quote unquote truth, but our, our, our society is putting on this second story, the non-rational, the non-cognitive, uh, varied experiences. This is where you hear the phrase, well, that's, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And it's okay that it's true for you. Now, this is where our society has put everything that has to do with religion, right? This is where pluralism, and if you were here two weeks ago and I talked about pluralism, this is where pluralism comes into play. Because religion doesn't, rely on the, doesn't reside on the first floor and is therefore not binding for everyone, then everyone in society gets to say, all right, your truth is your truth because it's experiential it's non-rational. You can't show it to me on a piece of paper and I can't know it. Um, and so then it doesn't have to be true for me. This is, this, is where, um, this is where truth becomes optional or relative. Relative truth means that it's relative to, to the person that, uh, you know, from your position. So from my position, I see this as truth, but you may be looking at it differently. So we have these two stories. Now that seems like a really nice, neat structure, doesn't it? That the first floor is um, rational, verifiable facts that's binding on everyone. That's the secular. The second story is the non-rational, non-cognitive, varied experiences. That would be the sacred. And, and that, you know, the two never meet. That's the way that um, really this began to be built even in during modernity, right? This, this, this isn't new. This really begins to find its roots in the 1700s, right? This has been around for a long time. We've been building at this point for a long time. What started to happen though, where you're starting to see some things happen um, in the last 20 or 30 years is where when the majority of society, so, well, let's even tra trace back further than that. It used to be, and even though I, I, just from a historical perspective, do not believe that there was ever a time where the majority of people in America were actually Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians, okay? And I know some of you will fight me on that, and that's okay, and we can have that discussion later. Um, but it used to be that the majority opinion in the United States was at least highly influenced by the scriptures. So what happened? We went to the second floor and we brought down some of those things and we brought them down to the first floor. And we expected everybody in society to agree with them, didn't we? Right? I wasn't alive in the you know, 1940s and the 1950s. Some of you were. And when some of you think about the good old days of American culture, that's probably what you're thinking about. You're not saying everything back then was perfect because it certainly wasn't. We could poke a whole lot of holes in that time period. But you had a lot of people, at least in their, with their lips, not necessarily their lifestyle or their heart, but were affirming that certain things in the Bible were were true, at least certain moralistic principles were true. 
Well, as our society became less and less Christianized and more and more secularized and certainly um, more and more populist, those things got moved back up to the top floor. Now, here's what you have to understand, Christian. The things that we hold to be sacred are no longer on the first floor in our society. And they probably never will be again. Okay? Now, I'm not saying they don't belong there. I'm getting there. But they're not there. So what our society has done is they've moved, thing, they've, moved our, they've moved Christian stuff back up to that top floor. And they've said this. If you want to be a Christian, go be a Christian. Y'all keep it in your churches. You keep it out of the public square. And they're saying this more and more loudly now, right? So this is when we got, you know, we, we can't pray in school anymore. Um, don't, you know, don't share the gospel with people. Don't talk about those things, right? We've not necessarily codified in law a lot of that. But that, it's become taboo to do some of those things because we've moved some of that back up. And we've replaced it with, I'm going to use the word moralistic, but don't think about it the same way as I used it the first time. Moralistic principles based off of new thinking. So now there are within our culture absolute truths that used to reside on the second floor that now reside on the first floor and to deny them is to not be a part of majority culture. So, I've got, in in a few weeks, we're we're going to deal with with sexuality and marriage. And um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to be outspoken about the defense of the Bible's definition of marriage and keep a secular job. That doesn't mean you can't hold to it, but what do you better do? You better just shut up and do your job right? Because you start talking about that to people, because we've, we've pulled marriage equality down and what they refer to as marriage equality. They, they've, we've pulled uh, anybody can marry whoever they want down from the first floor to the second floor. So that's just, that's just an example of it, all right? So these things kind of, this is what happens in, in a secular society. It, it, things that were true are no longer true, and right? Because we have these two stories and we like to put things based off of what's kind of the dominant opinion. And there are some truths that are relative. And, and it's important for us to recognize that. If, if we're going to be intellectually honest, we do have to recognize that we all operate as if truth, at least some truth, is relative from our perspective. So let me, let me illustrate. This, this ought to be fun. So let's say you got to go to Richmond tomorrow. So you're going to get on, um, you know, from here, you'd hop on 664, and then you'd take 64 north up to Richmond. Now, the state of Virginia likes to change speed limits just at random times. I don't know what it is about this state. Um, You notice I didn't pick 58 because the example just wouldn't hold water on 58. But once you get kind of Williamsburg-ish, from, from there up to Richmond, it's, a, it's typically 65 miles an hour. There are probably a few 70-mile-an-hour stretches. There are probably a few 55, 60s. But it, it's typically 65 miles an hour is the speed limit. So here's what I want to ask. What does 65 miles an hour mean to you? So if you think a posted speed limit that says 65 miles an hour means I could probably go 70 and still be safe and still be all right. If it's 70, raise your hand. Okay? Bill, you're lying because I've heard people ride with you to, uh, to, to football games. All right. Now, all right, so 70. What about 75? Anybody would say, you know, I think 75. Eh, thanks for being at 75. 75. <laughs> Miss Eva's up here going 75 up to right, 75. Would anybody say it's, you know, well, I'm gonna just be honest, it's 80. <laughs> we always got one or two speed freaks, you know? All right, is there anybody that 65 means 65? Brody Bryce, you don't drive. <laughs> but you've always got those people, right, that are gonna get in the left lane and go 65, you know, 64 point eight, nine, you know, and block everybody. Do you know what you just proved? 
you just proved that at least as it relates to speed limit, truth is relative. It's relative to a lot of things. It's, it's right. So you've got all these lenses and all these lenses have added up in your life that have to do with risk, reward, safety, the flexibility under the law, right? All of these things have contributed to the fact that some of us think 65 miles an hour really means 70 or 65 miles an hour really means 75. And then you got some sticklers that are like, no, 65 means 65. You may, I didn't ask this, but you may have somebody that thinks, I don't know, if the limit's 65, I may only need to go 62. You people need to have somebody else drive you. That's all I know. Because it's, it's, that's what it means for truth to be relevant. So, so we've just proved it in here that at least some truth is relative, even though here's what we know. Intellectually, we, at least we ought to know this. 65 means 65. Like that is the law. And while a police officer may also view that speed limit as relative and give you that additional five miles an hour, there is nothing within the law that says they have to, Right? And to go 66 in a 65, you are breaking the law because that speed limit is not relative, but we operate as if it is. And that's one example of a thousand that we could give, right? Now, let's think about what ends up happening in society when that happens. And by the way, ours is the first society that that's happened in. This is, we are not the first relativistic society to say, you know, truth depends on the way that I see it. it. It's happened before us. It happened long before us. In Judges 21, verse 25, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Everybody just doing what is right in their own eyes. That's where Israel found themselves uh, a few hundred years after returning to the promised land. There had just been a series of judges that ruled over them, but no king like every other nation had, no established set of laws. And so everybody just did what was right, which means some people did right as defined by God and some people didn't do right as defined by God, but it was right in their own eyes. And, and that's, that's where we kind of find ourselves with, with um, truth these days is people are wanting to define truth, particularly that second level as, as saying, I get to determine what of this is right for me. I get to determine what of this is not right for me, even if it's truth for you. And here's what we're going to establish today. Really what exists is what is known as absolute truth. Absolute truth is something that is true for all people at all times. If something is not true, it doesn't belong in the house, okay? We shouldn't have a two-story house that says one plus one is two is true, and God created the heavens and the earth is true, but one of those belongs on one floor and one of those belongs on the other floor because one of them is universally applicable to everybody and the other is only applicable to those that ascribe truth to Genesis 1, 1 as found in the Bible. From a Christian worldview perspective, here's what we have to say. There is no floors to the house of truth. If something is true, then it belongs in the house. If something is not true, then it doesn't matter if someone says it is true or not. Their opinion doesn't matter, just like it is with your speeding. Now, you notice I'm saying you're speeding because as your pastor, I would never, ever consider going over the speed. Um, right? So we know that. I got my family sitting in here, so you can only lie for so long. Um, so, but, but this is what, we, right, it, it, we may think 65 means 70 or 65 means 75, but in truth, it does at all. 65 means, means 65, right? So only what needs to be in the house of truth that we're building, we're not gonna delineate between stories. We're just going to say, this is, this is what it is because we don't wanna be those people that are just doing what's right in our own eyes. So then what is truth then? What is this absolute truth? True, absolute truth is something that is true for all people at all times, 
Now you may say, wait, that sounds a whole lot like that first floor, right? Those, those facts that are verifiable, that are rational, that are, as we, you know, maybe we describe as secular, isn't that the same thing? No, not at all, because we're not going to say that only mathematical and scientific uh, facts are facts. We're going to say that the Bible and God and Jesus are truth. And that's what I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes walking through those three things. It's like these things are truth and they belong in the house of truth. In, in our minds, if we're picturing that house, they don't belong up on the second floor. They are as equally true as the fact that gravity is pulling you towards the earth right now. Is that God is who the Bible says he is and the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus is as well. So, absolute truth is something that is true for all people at all times. So, let's think about where we, where we can find that truth. We introduced some of these meta-narratives of the Scripture last week. What I wanted to do this week is to really kind of define that idea of truth for us. The knowledge of God and His Word are the ultimate standard of truth. The knowledge of God and his word are the ultimate standard of truth. So even the things not found in scripture that are found elsewhere, and you're not hearing me, please don't, don't hear me say that you can't find truth elsewhere. There is truth, lots of it, to be found elsewhere, um, which is why a Christian education involves mathematics and science and other things, because there's truth to be found in those places. But all of it must be tested against the knowledge of God and his word, because it is the ultimate standard of truth, because God himself is truth. In Jeremiah 10, we, we read this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And you say, what does that have to do with truth and fiction? Well, first, the Lord is the true God. And that idea of true God is that he, that he is truth. And you say, well, maybe we don't have these other gods. Why, why keep going and going into verse 11? Because we have exalted things, we as in human beings, have always made false gods out of things that aren't gods. And we, we picture false gods as some statue sitting on a table when so often a false god is not a statue sitting on a table, but an idea. Something else that we rise to the level of God and even say this truth trumps the truth of God. And that's where Jeremiah is saying, these gods, these ideas who did not make the heavens of the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. They do not stand the test of God himself. So God is the definition of truth. Now, just think about this uh, rationally for a minute. This, this is a true statement because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. God is the sustainer of the entire universe. None of this exists without him. None of it exists outside of him. And so for us to comprehend truth in this universe that he made, we must do so with the right understanding that he is truth. And then God is also not only truth, but he's faithful to that truth. That God never does anything outside of the binds of himself. And one of the characteristics of God is his truthfulness. And so God is always faithful to his truthfulness. God doesn't uh, God doesn't twist the truth. God doesn't manipulate the truth. God just speaks the truth and then holds to his word that he has said is true. In Numbers twenty nine nineteen, we read, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and, and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You notice what we read there in Numbers 29 is, is not a very high view of man. It goes back to one of the things we talked about last week, that we're all capable of great evil. Everybody in this room has told a lie before. We've all been caught in our lies, and likely we've all told way more lies than we've ever been caught in. 
Man is marked by lies, but not God. God is not a man that he should lie. God is always faithful to the truth. Now take these things together, right? God is truth. God is faithful to the truth. So God is faithful to himself. This is why it's important for us uh, to affirm things like uh, the impassibility of God. That's a big word to mean, that means God doesn't change. Right? God doesn't change because God is true to who he is. God is true to who he is for all eternity. He's never not, there's, you'll never, you can never go back in history long enough, even before time. You never go forward in history enough to find a time where God is not true to himself. Because he is truth. So he's faithful to that truth because he's faithful to himself. And so then when God speaks, he only ever speaks what? Truth. Hebrews 6, we read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, the unchangeable character of his purpose, that's immutability, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchanging things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, uh, we, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God wants to show something as true here, the author of Hebrews 6 says. And so he says he does it in two unchangeable things. What? His character and his oath, meaning his word. These things are unchangeable. Because they come out of, are a part of, are the character of, and and then spring forth from God himself. So God is truth, always has been, always will be. God is faithful to truth because he's faithful to himself. And so then anytime God says anything, what he says is unchangeably true. Why? Because it came from the one who is unchangeably true. So we can always trust God and we can always trust what God has said to always be true because God is true and he is the ultimate standard for truth. Which then brings us to the personification of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the personification of truth, right? Now, I don't have a great deal of time to go back through this, but in December, we looked at a brief, took a break in Genesis and went to John 1, talked about the prologue of John. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? That Jesus is the word of God. Now, what have we already seen? That the word of God is truth, all right? The word of God is truth, and the word of God was with God, meaning has always been there, has eternally existed with, and the word is or was God, still is God, meaning the the word is both beside and within the Godhead. So in one sense, the word is God, and in another sense, the word is with God. This is describing for us what we know as Trinitarian theology, that Jesus is God, that the Father is God, but that Jesus is not the Father and the Father is not Jesus, all right? So the Word was with God and the Word was God at the same time. And you may say, how can something be something and also be with it because it's God, okay? But for our purposes here, the idea is that because Jesus is the eternal Word of God, And because we've already established the fact that God's word is always true, unchangeably so, then Jesus himself as the personification of God, the word became, John 1, 14, the word, that unchangeable word of God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. Then during his life, so not only is John spelling this out for us in John 1, and because it's in the word of God, we should believe it as true, But then we get to later in the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus clearly says this about himself. Jesus said, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is where uh, Jesus somehow being a part of someone's relative version of truth, to me, completely falls apart. Because in this moment, Jesus is either telling the truth 
while he makes a mutually exclusive claim, right? I am the, I am the, not a, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that's it. I am the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. Uh, you can read it that way. And no one comes to the father, but, but through me, except through me. So that's a, that is a, an exclusive claim that Jesus is making. And so you don't get to take Jesus, which is what so many people want to do today. They want to take Jesus and apply him, put him up on that second floor because they got a second floor. They put him up on that second floor equal with all these other things that they've believed to be true and exalted as truth and, and have experienced as truth. Even though Jesus directly contradicts a lot of those things that they're putting right there, we would just call them idols. A lot of those idols that Jesus is directly being put beside in someone's mind. Jesus doesn't claim to be a version of the truth. He doesn't claim to even be a way to get to the truth that exists outside of him. Jesus claims to be the truth. And all of this progresses intentionally, right? Jesus claims to be the truth because he is the incarnate and the word became flesh. That's what the word incarnate means. He is the incarnate word of God. And as the word of God, he is God. And as, because he is God, he is truth. So Jesus, as we view him in the Bible, we have to view the person of Jesus as this personification of truth. So then everything about the life, ministry, and work of Jesus is absolute truth. Absolute truth. That we, we don't get to be, I think I've, I've used this example, maybe even on a Sunday morning before, I was reading an article or an opinion piece in the New York Times years ago from a guy who, who called himself, I just thought this was fascinating, he called himself a Sermon on the Mount Christian. Meaning he really embraced, and, and truthfully he didn't even embrace the whole Sermon on the Mount because there's some really like get in your face truths in the Sermon on the Mount. But it was really, it was, you know, the Beatitudes and the love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to turn the other, it was that kind of Christian the guy was, the guy was embracing. Rejected everything else Jesus said and was, was arguing for something that Jesus would have clearly rejected as the truth. We don't get to do that. We don't get to pick and choose our version of Jesus, the things we like about Jesus. Everything about his life, ministry, and work of Jesus is absolute truth. Now, here's what's interesting, right? This is kind of a little side note, but it's going to transition us our next topic. That means that every word Jesus said is equal with the Bible. Every word. He is God. Now, every word that Paul said is not equal with the Bible. Every word that Isaiah said as an Old Testament prophet is not equal with the Bible. Everything that, you know, that, that exists in, in, in the apostles or the prophets or uh, Old Testament historians, uh, these, these things that we've now collected as the word of God, the things that were inspired to be in scripture by the Holy Spirit is the word of God, uh, but the rest is not. The rest is fallible, but not with Jesus. You see, we don't get to have a fallible Jesus at any point in his life. Jesus was on earth God, completely infallible completely true. Why? Because to, if he were to say something that was not true, it would have proved he was not God because God is truth and God cannot deny himself. So we have to affirm everything about the life, ministry, and work of Jesus as absolute truth. We don't get to cherry pick it. We don't get to claim some of it as what we want it to be and some of it as not, which leads us to the word of God is truth. And the word of God here, I've already talked about God's word, that when God makes an oath, when God makes a promise, when God speaks, it is true. But that leads us to the scripture itself, the truthfulness of scripture, that God's word is true. All the words of scripture are completely true and without error in any part. That we, to, to have a true biblical worldview, and you would assume this is true, right? Because we're calling it a biblical worldview. <laughs> But to assume a biblical worldview means that it's going to begin with the affirmation that the one who gave it to us is truth, but that what he gave us is true, that all of it is true. It is completely true without any mixture of error. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, we read, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take 
refuge as him. We can't dismiss parts of the Bible as untrue, therefore unbelievable or unauthoritative. We have to, we have to affirm that the whole Bible is true. Now, last semester I taught for, I don't know, it was a good 12 weeks, maybe longer on Bible intake. And so I, I don't have, I mean, I only got 15 minutes left tonight. I, I don't have time to go over all of the ways in which we read the Bible to make sure we're reading it as truth, okay? Uh, if you weren't in here for that, all of that is podcasted. All of it is on our website. I would encourage you go to that and listen through it, particularly if you struggle with this idea that the Bible is true or how do I find the Bible is true or what do I do when, when I have an idea about the Bible and somebody else has an idea about the Bible. I'm gonna talk about a little bit of that, but I gave lots and lots of practical helps and, and ways that we read the Bible and study the Bible and how we do that in different genres of the scripture in the New Testament, the Old Testament. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of that. But for our purposes tonight, I just have to leave it here. We don't get to look at a part of it and say, eh, that's just not true. That's just not true. Because to disbelieve a part of it is to say that God lied in part. And if God lied in part, then God did not tell the truth. And if God did not tell the truth, then he has denied himself and is not the truth and therefore is not God. So we, we have to recognize that it is truth. And God's word is the ultimate written standard for truth. Now, I've already said that the person and word of God, the, the character and, and, and word of God is our ultimate standard for truth. But for us, it's, we, we have it written for us. So we actually have something that we can go to. We don't just stare up in the sky and look for God and say, God, okay, tell me if this thing is true or not. We actually have something that we can all read and study and understand that's there for us that is our standard for truth. Jesus prayed this for his disciples. He said, he, he, this is part of what's known as the high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That the word of God is what, that sanctify means to Um, regularly put off sin and to put on Christ. It's that ongoing work between us and the Holy Spirit where we become more like Christ and less like the world. And it is through the word of God that we do that because the word of God shows us truth. The, The Bible is not simply, the Bible does not simply contain truths. And this is an important distinction for our age. The Bible does not simply contain truths, but it is itself truth. Just like God is truth, and Jesus is the personification of the word of God and therefore truth, the Bible is truth. And, and people want to trip you up by saying things like the Bible contains truth, or they'll even say things like the Bible contains the words of God, meaning I get to have some type of... Um, Uh, subjective approach to the scripture where I get to say this part is true and this part isn't, this part is true and this part isn't. Because when people do that, what are they ultimately doing? They're ultimately just picking the parts they like. They're allowing those other things that reside on their second floor of truth. They're allowing those other lenses, those other worldview things to tell them, well, there's no way that's true. There's no way God can actually think like that. There's no way God could do that. There's no way God would operate in this way. That can't be true. But I really like, you know, Matthew 5, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to be a Sermon on the Mount Christian. We don't get to do that because it's not just that the Bible is simply true. The Bible is truth itself. Now, but this begs a question for us. How, how, do, we, how do we come to this then and, and, and get that truth? How do, how do we make sure that, that we get it right? And again, I spent all last semester giving a lot of those practices, um, what's known as hermeneutics, the study of the scripture. How, how do you really do that well? And hopefully that was helpful to so many of you. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that we could catalog that and people could go back and watch it. But let me just give you one here because this is something that has arisen particularly within uh, evangelical Christianity, which, which we're a part of. We are, at least as a Baptist church, we are, would be known as Protestant evangelicals, okay? 
You want to talk about something that's like trying to nail jello to a wall is the term evangelical, okay? They, the media uses that term a lot, and I look at the person that they're calling an evangelical, and I'm like, ah, oh, please, that's not my camp, okay? Um, but nonetheless, sometimes it's a really broad word. Um, but something happened within evangelical Christianity nah, 100 and 150 years ago where there began to be this movement towards uh, what its mantra was really, and even particularly within Baptist life, the, the mantra was no creeds, but the Bible. All I need is my Bible. I don't need, and this, I mean, this showed up in extreme ways where you, you have churches, you have pastors that they won't prepare to preach, right? They won't read commentaries. They won't see what other people, all I, all I need is my Bible and the Holy Spirit. And, and right. And then, and then that leads us to, uh, within, um, within moralistic therapeutic deism, this worldview where, you know, God's always happy with me. It leads us to that kind of Bible study where we all just sit around and we read a scripture and we're like, what does that mean to you? And it may mean something completely different to me and that's okay. Cause it means something to you and something to me. Well, it's actually not okay. Right. Um, and so we're, here, here's what we're, we're doing. I want to bring back our teenagers into this in a minute. For the last several weeks, I don't know, a couple of months now, maybe three months or so now, Pastor Michael and, and our student ministry leaders have been teaching y'all what on Wednesday nights? The Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is this ancient document that is not Scripture, but boiled down the main teachings of Scripture into what is known as a confession, Right? And that's not the only confession that exists. There are great confessions that exist. If you were with us this time last year when I was talking about uh, Baptist distinctives, I did a whole Wednesday night, bored some of you to tears, talking about creeds and, and, and confessions and, and what we now have is what's known as the Baptist faith and message. Um, there was this time where, where evangelical Christianity in America was really rejecting a lot of that. And that pendulum's starting to swing back to the middle, and I think in a very good way, and here's why. Because if you go to your Bible and you find something that no one else has ever found before, under the no creeds but the Bible mantra, you get to say, well, this is true to me. And that's super dangerous. But when we're willing to go back and say, okay, well, what does the Apostles' Creed say? What does the Baptist faith and message say? What does the London Confession say? While I may disagree with pieces of it, and even within the Baptist faith and message, I got this one little piece that I'm like, ah, I'm just not sure that, that that's, you know, it's nothing major. I taught on it last year. You go back and listen to it. It's, it's who we allow to take the Lord's Supper, okay? That's, that's, my one little, that's my one little caveat with the Baptist faith and message. Um, but... We, we allow ourselves to be influenced by those things. And I think that's really good. All right. So here's what I'm saying to you. Scripture. Scripture is truth. You need to read the scriptures. You need to read your truth. You need to do so well, which is why I did that whole series last fall and winter. But you ultimately don't get to land on your own truth and it being your truth. That, that the Bible means what the Bible means. And, and you need to, you need to uh, do the very best you can. And things like the Apostles' Creed, which our teenagers are studying line by line, and they're not just studying it line by line and taking it on the Apostles' Creed, the author of the Apostles' Creed word that it's true. What Pastor Michael and our youth leaders are doing is they're going line by line through it and they're showing them in the Bible where we get that, right? We wouldn't just teach a creed. We would use, they're using the creed to teach the scriptures, because the scriptures is what is truth. But it's helpful to test against some of those things when we have these ideas. Finally, other absolute truths exist as creations of God, but none will contradict himself, Jesus, or his word. So these things that we've seen here tonight that are truth, God is truth. He is the definition of truth. He will not deny himself. Jesus, the personification of the word of God and his word in, written to us in the scriptures are truth and other truth exists and should be in our house. Remember, our house is going to be one story. It's going to only be things that are true. We're not going to have a second story where we say, okay, well, it's all right for you to believe something different about this uh, and yours true can be as equal as my true. By the way, let me, let me help with that. It is okay if someone believes something different than you. I'm not saying it's not okay for someone to believe something different than you. What's not okay is for someone to believe something different than you 
and you affirm that their truth is also truth. It's just truth for them. Does that make sense? That, that's where we've crossed the line. We, we don't get to tell someone who doesn't believe in what the scriptures teach that their truth is equally valid. And that is what our world is demanding of us now. Our world is demanding that we hold as equally valid to our own understanding of scripture, that understanding of any other world religion or no religion at all that people may, which is why the world built that second floor and put everything else up there and shoved us up those stairs. And here's what we're gonna say. We're not gonna have that. We're gonna say there is truth. And yes, there is truth that exists outside of the Bible. Mathematics and um, I mean, even uh, not even just in the sciences. I mean, they're just things that are true that we need to recognize as truth. But none of them will contradict God, Jesus. Not contradict God in His character, the personification of that in Christ, or His written word to us. So, if we're going to have a biblical worldview, it's going to demand that we affirm this. Absolute truth exists. There is truth that is true for everyone, for all time. That it's found in God. It's specifically found in his word. And any other truth that we may affirm cannot be in contradiction to it. Because God is the ultimate test for all things that are true. And so nothing gets to be on that second floor. It's either true or it is not true. And so I just got a couple of minutes. We, we've got you know, young people in the room and I, I spent a lot of my life teaching young people. A lot of my life. More of my life I spent teaching young people than I've spent teaching adults. And uh, my great concern for them, what Christy and I did, particularly in our last stop in student ministry, where we had a really, really large youth group, was... Um, I preached on Wednesday nights because uh, we had a youth worship service. But on Sunday mornings, I, we taught 12th graders uh, in small group. And, and I, taught on basic, I taught on basic doctrinal truths. We, just, we spent the whole year talking about Bible doctrine. Because here's what I was concerned for and wanted to try my best to head off. I, I was concerned that they were going to get out of mom and dad's house. They're going to get out of our church. They're going to go off to college somewhere. And they're going to be bombarded by this pluralistic society that says, oh, you're a Christian. That's sweet. That's great. That belongs on the second floor. And it's equally valid to all these things these other people believe. And they'll start believing that to be true. And unfortunately, that's what happened to some of them. I mean, just truthfully is. So we have our, our students sitting here with us tonight. Here's what I want you to know. While you're, while you're here with us, do everything you can to lock down these truths, to recognize that what God says is true is true. There is absolute truth. It's found in him. It's not, it's not relative to your position. Someone else doesn't get to claim to have equal authority in that truth if it contradicts God or his word or the person and work of Jesus Christ. Affirm that truth in your heart now and live it for the rest of your life. Doesn't mean there won't be doubts. Doesn't mean there won't be questions. There will always be questions. Doesn't mean you won't need correcting at times. I mean, you're not going to get it wrong. Look, I get it wrong. We all do. But this firm base understanding that, that truth is what God says it is, um, is what you must have as a believer in Jesus to survive the type of world that we are living in now that has uh, so attacked the, the very idea of truth itself. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you that we can talk about, thank you that you are truth and we can talk about it and um, help us in our unbelief because I probably, they're in the room watching with us online. There's somebody that right now just said, my doubts are many. I struggle to, to, to affirm some of these things. Will you help them in that? God, thank you that you're patient with us that you don't give up on us when we get it wrong. You don't get an, uh, give up on us when we sin against you. You don't even give up on us when we say, well, I don't know, maybe this other thing could be true too. Help us, God, to speak that truth in love to people. Let us not be abrasive. Uh, let us not be callous towards the loss, but let us be loving in the way that we present truth. 
I pray God, particularly for young people in this room, that they would, that they would lock in on the truth that is you, your son Jesus, and your word, and they would never move from it. Help us as a church to help them to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those that joined us online, thank you for uh, being with us. Next week, let me just give you a little preview just quickly. Students, I'm pretty sure you're going to be back upstairs next Wednesday. Um, next week in here, here, here's the subject, right? We're, gonna, we're, we're making a transition now because I'm about to start talking about subjects, about how we are to approach certain, certain specific subjects. But we're going to make this transition next week by thinking about historically and then even in modern times. How has the church attempted to relate to its culture? Because in varying times, the church has sought to retreat from culture. The church has sought to influence culture. The church has sought to be over culture. The church has sought to be under culture. And I'm going to present all of those and kind of show you all of those varying models because we're going to start dealing with these cultural issues of truth in two weeks. And so we're going to have to land on one specific model that's going to be our approach to it. So that's what we're going to do next week. So I hope you'll be back with me. Thank you for joining us online. Those are in the room. Always thanks for being here.